South Korea and the Pacific Islands hold an inaugural summit, ongoing debates on a nuclear-free Pacific Ocean, and a new House of Representatives task force on countering Chinese influence in the Pacific. Today is June 22, 2023, and welcome back to the second episode of Pacific Airwaves, a new podcast on the Pacific Islands from the Southeast Asia Program and Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS. I'm Karen Lee, joined here by my co-host, Jared Tupola. How's it going, Jared? Positively dreadful, Karen. Simply dour. But now that I'm here with you chatting all things Pacific Islands, I have a feeling my day is on the upswing. Oh boy. Well, on that cheery note, let's just get right into the news. So right after we released our last episode, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol hosted the country's first summit with Pacific Island leaders from May 29th to 30th. During the two-day event, all stakeholders agreed to expand cooperation across the areas of economic development, security, and climate change, ending with a joint declaration that recognized their shared respect for freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. President Yoon also used the occasion to declare the Pacific Islands as a key partner in South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. If you're wondering why we're covering this story on the podcast, there are actually positive implications for the United States. The Yoon administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, which was released in December, was the first of its kind and highlighted a greater scope for trilateral cooperation with the U.S. and Australia to tackle common regional challenges like supply chains and critical minerals. While the strategy struck a balanced tone by referring to China as a key partner for achieving prosperity and peace in the region, it seems that Seoul also recognizes that the Pacific has become the focus of geopolitical tensions and is seeking to increase cooperation on issues of common interest. And hopefully, there will be plenty of opportunities to partner with the U.S. I'm glad there is so much multilateral representation as well. Officials from 17 of the 18 members of the Pacific Islands Forum attended, as well as representatives from Australia and France. Were there any other highlights from the summit, Jared? Yeah, I think it's worth digging a little deeper into the language from the joint declaration. In one of the points, leaders reaffirmed their shared views on the importance of keeping the ocean and maritime resources free of radioactive waste pollution. I can't help but wonder whether this could complicate relations between Seoul and Tokyo, considering Japan's ongoing plans to gradually release more than 1 million tons of treated water from the now-disabled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean later this year. Hmm, that's a good point. The plant's operator, TEPCO, has repeatedly said they will not release the water until they know that it's safe to do so, and has been conducting tests leading up to mandatory pre-operation checks in early July. Last week, Papua New Guinea Prime Minister James Marape issued a statement supporting Japan's plans to release the water. But then three days later, he backtracked on this position when questioned in parliament after a wave of backlash from PNG citizens and Pacific climate and nuclear-free campaigners. The concerns over the ecological impact of nuclear wastewater dumping are obvious, but the Pacific Islands do have a uniquely sensitive history to nuclear issues because of U.S. nuclear testing in Micronesia. Between 1946 and 1958, the United States conducted 67 nuclear tests on and above the Marshall Islands as part of its Cold War atomic testing program. Thousands of residents were displaced, and Bikini Atoll, where a third of the tests were conducted, and some surrounding islands, are still uninhabited to this day due to high levels of radiation in the area. In January, more than 100 activist groups urged the Biden administration to formally apologize to the Marshall Islands for the impact of those nuclear testing programs and provide fair compensation. There's actually been speculation that negotiations over these provisions are the reason behind the delay in finalizing the renewal of the United States Compact of Free Association, or COFA, agreement with the Marshall Islands, which we covered in our last episode. Going back to Japan's plans, Palau's president, Sarangal Whips Jr., has called on the country to increase transparency around the decommissioning process of the plant after visiting Fukushima last week. But Jared, hasn't Palau made headlines recently for different reasons? Indeed it has. Since signing a renewed COFA agreement with the United States last month, Palau has reported several incursions by Chinese vessels into its exclusive economic zone. 
Concerns rose when a Chinese vessel was found seemingly conducting a survey around an area with sensitive fiber optic cables that are critical to Palau's communication capabilities. President Whips Jr. said he would raise the issue of China's incursions at the Pacific Island Forum leaders' meeting in November. In response, a spokesperson from China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has claimed that the vessels were seeking refuge in Palau's waters and that there had been no surveys or investigations. That being said, President Whips Jr. has asserted that he would like to host a larger U.S. military presence on the islands alongside Coast Guard and civilian teams. This builds upon existing plans by the United States to construct an over-the-horizon radar station on Palau by 2026. In that light, some could view Beijing's actions as an attempt to display its reach into the Pacific Islands as a tacit warning against deeper security relations with Washington. While there's been no response from the Pentagon yet, on the home front, Congress is also not so coincidentally taking steps to address China's presence in the Pacific Islands. Congress? Taking interest in the Pacific Islands? Oh, the times they are changing. The future is now, Jared, so let me lay out the details for you. Last week, the Committee on Natural Resources in the House of Representatives announced the formation of a bipartisan task force that will conduct oversight on issues facing U.S. territories and freely associated states in the Indo-Pacific region. Claiming that China's growth is perhaps the U.S.'s single greatest threat, the purpose of the task force will be to address regional issues and better equip the United States to counter the Chinese government's political and economic influence operations in the region. That's quite a mandate they've got. From what I can gather, the task force will look beyond traditional security issues as well. Congresswoman Uifa Atalia Mata from American Samoa has raised concerns about China's distant water fishing fleet and its effects on the economic and environmental security of Pacific Island communities. I can always count on you to find a way to loop fish into the conversation, Jared. But for now, that's a wrap on today's episode of Pacific Airwaves. Did you guys forget about me? Oh my god. Speaking of fishy, is that none other than the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative's incandescent research associate, Monica Sato? I mean, I got your cryptic note on my desk to meet in the recording studio and was promised a snack. I knew that trail of Swedish fish would work. Okay, okay. Well, Monica, welcome back to the studio. We asked you here today because a little fishy told me that AMTI just published a feature on U.S. military investments in the Pacific Islands. Care to tell us more about the feature and the team's findings? Happy to. Though AMTI has found that it's not just the United States that's making waves in the Pacific. In our feature, Strategic Upgrades in the Pacific, AMTI has constructed an interactive map and accompanying feature text that contextualizes new strategic initiatives in the Pacific Islands and broader Oceania since 2019 by the United States, Australia, and China. Very cool. Would you say that the majority of the upgrades have been military initiatives? Well, there have been significant efforts made by the United States and Australia to expand their security cooperation with each other and with Pacific Island countries. But to portray the U.S. engagement purely through a security lens isn't wholly accurate. In the feature, we lay out a range of economic and diplomatic initiatives that the United States has pursued. Some of these include renewed economic assistance agreements with the freely associated states, but also diplomatic efforts such as the opening of embassies in several countries in the region, including Kiribati and Tonga, both of which you've covered on the podcast. Jared, what are some concrete defense developments that the United States has made? I think one of the most noteworthy developments has been the opening in January of Marine Corps Base Camp Laws in Guam, which is the first base to have been built in 70 years and highlights increasing efforts by the United States to align its defense posture with Japan. We've also heard of AUKUS, the trilateral pact between the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia to provide the former with nuclear-powered submarines. To facilitate this, Australia is upgrading several military facilities across its northern and eastern territories to include air bases, piers, and fueling facilities, as well as expanding rotational military exchanges with the United States through the Australia-United States Ministerial. 
Wow, that's a lot to take in, and that's just the highlights of U.S. and Australian efforts. Since the feature also covers China's actions in the Pacific, can you give us a quick rundown of the feature's findings on the state of PRC Pacific engagement? Absolutely. In the feature, we lay out a mix of both diplomatic wins and setbacks for China. Many on your podcast will likely have heard about the security pact with the Solomon Islands that was leaked last year and provides for Chinese security forces and vessels to operate in the Solomon Islands under certain circumstances. While this raised alarm bells in Canberra and Washington, a subsequent regional tour by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi failed to cinch an expansive trade and security agreement with regional states despite inking 52 other bilateral agreements with Pacific countries on issues such as the Belt and Road Initiative and climate change. Our findings dig deeper and explore the variety of efforts China has made to strategically expand its infrastructure footprint in the region, potentially to leverage these projects into dual-use military commercial facilities to support Chinese security forces. There's a lot more that we could go into, so if you want the full story, be sure to check out the feature on AMTI's website. And that's an actual wrap. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pacific Airwaves. If you're looking for Pacific Waves, be sure to check out the daily news podcast from Radio New Zealand. Let us know what you think of our coverage by writing to our main email at searadio at csis.org. And thank you so much to the listeners who sent us encouraging notes last month. Rest assured, we're reading them all and really appreciate the support. If you're not following us already, please subscribe or give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite streaming platform. Our producer is Marla Hiller. I'm Jared Tupuola. I'm Monica Sato. And I'm Karen Lee. And we'll see you next month for another episode of Pacific Airwaves.